Welcome to the Round Rock Church of Christ Teaching Podcast. We're a faith community located in the central Austin area that gathers at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope this teaching blesses you as we become spirit-filled and spirit-led Jesus followers for those who do not have a home. If you want to turn with us today into the story in Acts, that's going to be in chapter 19, starting in verse 1. God's story has always involved water. When God creates a home, or in the language of the Bible, when God creates a temple for human beings, He starts with water. The Spirit hovers over water, not because the water is special, but because the power of God can create something. When God creates a home for people, he suspends water over their heads. And when God wants to create distinction, separation, he uses water. At the end of the Bible, when the scriptures describe God's home, it includes water. John, in his prophetic imagery, says that the throne of God As you look up to it, there is a sea of glass that's like crystal and the water is stilled. And where the tree of life is, rivers of water flow beside it. And in the scriptures, when God is welcoming people home and leading them home, God is using water. When God's home is not what God intended it to be. God sends a flood over the earth for his regenerative power. When God's people need freedom from slavery, he makes a way through parting the waters. When God's people need leading, he takes liquid droplets by day and leads them by a cloud. Even when God's people are kicked out of their home. In the words of Jeremiah, God reminds his people he is like an ever-living fountain. And when God in Jesus Christ comes into the world to bring heaven to earth to complete God's mission, Jesus starts with water and finishes with water. Before he does anything to inaugurate the mission of God, he plunges himself in the water of baptism. He immerses himself into God's reality. And at the end, before Jesus leaves, the last thing he talks about is water. He says, I want you to go to all the nations and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not only does Jesus get baptized, but we see in the book of Acts, everyone who follows after him gets baptized as well. Throughout the book of Acts, different people come to baptism in different ways. But one thing is true of the story of God. When people meet Jesus, And when they want to follow and find union with him, 
they enter the waters of baptism. It happens over and over again. And as you walk through the book of Acts, you see all these different moments. In Acts 2, Peter preaches a bomb of a sermon. And at the very end, which for some of us this is very familiar, Peter says that you should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And people get baptized. In Acts 8, there is a group of people who come in Samaria. They hear and confess faith and they're baptized. In Acts 9, a man by the name of Saul sees the resurrected Jesus. And one of the first things he does is he gets baptized. In Acts 10, Peter comes to a group of people led by Cornelius. They profess belief and are baptized. In Acts 16, a story we don't get to, to get to hear in this series, but is a great one. The story of Lydia, that she opens her heart to the Lord and her whole house is baptized. In Acts 18, many who heard Paul, they believed the message of the gospel and they were baptized. There is this flow of God's story over and over again. And then you get to a record stopper story in Acts 19. There's this normal flow all the way through Acts. They believe they were baptized. They believe they were baptized. And then in Acts 19, you have this abnormal story about baptism. People who study Acts actually refer to Acts 19 as one of the most complex and ambiguous stories in the book of Acts. Because if we're honest, as we read the story, and we try not to interject our thoughts and assumptions, we're just left with a lot of ambiguities about these people who call themselves disciples. If you just hear the text, you're wondering, they use the phrase disciples, but they haven't heard about the Holy Spirit? Do they consider themselves disciples or is Luke calling them disciples? They haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. Have they received the Holy Spirit? You're left wondering, they've heard about the news of John and, and Ephesus, but they haven't heard of Jesus. Have these guys entered into God's salvation story? The story is so ambiguous. It has so many wanderings of who Paul runs up on and what these people believe. In Acts 19, as weird and ambiguous as it is, I actually really like this chapter. I like it because some of our stories with God are ambiguous. That some of us today walk into church with wanderings. We may wonder, are we a disciple of Jesus? We may wonder that we've grown up around the stories of God and may wonder what is our next step with God. We may be wondering about how can we be confident of the Spirit's work in our lives. We may be wondering, my story doesn't exactly look like a dramatic story found in the book of Acts, 
but I believe it and I follow Jesus. There may be someone in this room this morning that's wondering, what could my next step with God look like? And one of the things I greatly appreciate about Paul is he comes to this group of people who would call themselves disciples, and he says, let's back up for a minute. And he asks just a fundamental question. He asks the question, if you heard the Holy Spirit, and they're like, no, we've not heard of the Holy Spirit. His question then is, what baptism did you receive? And they answered, John's. And I want you to listen closely to the question that Paul is asking. Paul assumes if someone is a disciple of Jesus, they are baptized. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you do the things of Jesus. And one of the first things Jesus does is get baptized. And when they mention John's baptism, they're referring to a man who came that warned and he talked about God's kingdom is coming and that time to repent and turn to the one who is coming is one all of us should be attentive to. But Paul points to them and says, it is important that you not just know the story, but you actually get baptized in the one who fulfills all the promises of God. And even though they may consider themselves disciples, they needed to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And Paul says this, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Which for some of us may bring the question of what is such the big deal about being baptized in the name of Jesus. Can't this be just like a bath or a hot tub moment? What's so important about being immersed in water, plunging yourself into the story of God? Maybe an analogy I think um, could be helpful with the imagery of how Scripture talks about baptism. You know, I've... Um, I've shared up on this platform um, some things I'm not proud of that I've done in my life. And uh, one of them I've reflected with you before is in my first year of marriage, um, I had this terrible idea. I thought it was a great idea at the time um, that um, I thought I could help navigate what items we brought into our marriage. Uh, you know, I learned very quickly there are some people in this world who they get rid of things. And then there's other people in this world who collect things. And I married the latter. And I am the former. And I remember when I first got into the marriage, one of the decisions that I made was I was like, okay, we need to clear out some clothes in this closet. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some items of my spouse's clothing and I'm going to hide them. And I'm going to hide them. I'm going to count how many days it is before my spouse brings up those items being gone. And my game plan was basically this. I'm going to hide the items. I'm going to hide them for about 32 days. That feels about right to me. Then I'm going to put the clothes back in the closet. And then I'm going to pick up the clothes. And I'm going to say, hey, we haven't worn this in 32 days. Can we go ahead and give this thing away? 
I thought this idea was phenomenal. The Bible would call this idea foolishness, okay? Because it didn't go over well at all. My spouse was like, 32 days? How'd you know it was 32 days? I, I don't know. That was just a guess on my end. And then as I revealed it, I was like, uh-oh, this is a problem. And one of the things that I learned with this is, you know, an item of clothing is not just an item of clothing. It goes with an outfit. So if you take out an item of clothing, you mess up the outfit. And some of you are like, amen, now you're preaching. That is what I'm talking about. You need different clothes for different seasons and different situations. And we worked this out in marriage counseling. We found out that my spouse, she has um, a case of being normal, okay? And uh, we found out that I have a case of being highly particular in a stressful way. <laughs> but it takes a full wardrobe. Sometimes when you pull away one item, it affects all the others. The way that Scripture talks about baptism is it gives you a full closet of what it means to clothe yourself in Christ in baptism. Scripture talks about baptism in different ways to speak to us in different ways in different situations. And sometimes what we want to do is we want to hold up a sock or we want to say we want to hold up a sweater and we want to say this is baptism. And yes, it is. But Scripture gives us a closet full of descriptions when it comes to baptism. There's multiple themes and maybe this would be helpful to write down. Scripture talks about baptism as it's something in the name of Jesus that is actually rebirth. That Jesus describes baptism as this sacred womb. It's this unique venue where the Holy Spirit washes us, brings us into life with God. It's the place where we say yes to how God has said yes to us in Jesus Christ. At one point, Jesus is talking to a religious leader and he says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. In baptism, we are reborn. In baptism, we are adopted. There's adoption language in places like Titus, Starting in verse 3, at one point we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all sorts of kinds of passions and pleasures. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. When we enter the waters of baptism, God declares our identity as a son, as a daughter of the living God. And in the waters of baptism, we receive the family of God. You have brothers and sisters when you're baptized in the name of Jesus. You are no longer your own. There's no more just living for yourself. Your body joins the body. Of Jesus. Another way is it's described as the giving of self. At one point, Jesus literally says in the book of Mark, he asks, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptizing you with? 
In other words, when you step into the waters of baptism, you are surrendering your life. You're making a commitment to sacrifice and self-denial for the sake of the kingdom of God. Another way is you are entering the mission of God before Jesus does anything for the ministry of God. He comes and says, I need to be baptized. John uh, prevented him saying, uh, you know, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. Why do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it's proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. So John did it. In the waters of baptism, we're commissioned into the story of Jesus. And finally, baptism is the trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul actually describes we are mimicking the life and story of Jesus. We're plunging ourselves into that story when we enter into baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness or raised to life. In baptism, we are trusting Jesus in our final breath that he will raise us. We are dying to self and being lifted up. Every time I see a baptism, I'm always reminded, what's the last thing someone does before they go in the water? It's the last breath. You're plunged into the water, into death. And you're raised to life. You're given a new breath. And when we're baptized in the name of Jesus, when our final breath in life comes, when we take that final breath and we're laid down in death, trusting Jesus is saying, I trust in the resurrection at the end of time that he will raise me and I will spend life with him forever. In other words, baptism in the name of Jesus is important because it is joining ourselves to Jesus. I want to just gently remind us in the scriptures where we see baptism, it's never brought about from the motivation of fear or peer pressure. The motivation is to join Jesus. The motivation is to join in life of Jesus, to join Jesus, join his promises and being alive in him. And this is where I find Acts 19 to be so helpful, reminding us of what we are coming to when we consider baptism. And it's also a reminder of what is happening after our journey of baptism as well. It's a reminder for those of us who have actually entered the waters of baptism that the story of baptism is not the end all of the journey. It's actually the beginning of the journey. I want you to just see how wild it gets after this baptism happens. Follow with me in verse six. So then Paul who laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them 
and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. In other words, they spoke in a heavenly language and they spoke the things of God all together. There were 12 of them. And then they entered the synagogue and for three months they spoke out boldly and they argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. And when some of them stubbornly refused to believe and spoke evil of the way before the congregation, he left them, taking the disciples with him and argued daily in the lecture halls of that place. And this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul does not baptize. And then he just pats him on the back and says, you're good. See you at the end of everything. When Paul baptizes in the name of Jesus, he lifts them from the water and they continue a journey of experiencing and learning. And this is why this is so crucial of remembering that baptism is not just a starting line. It's a journey when we exit the waters. We cannot treat baptism like it is a finish line. Because there is more experiencing and learning to happen at this time. Now, I want to make kind of a pastoral note here. Uh, in the book of Acts, and this is intentionally one of the reasons why I'm bringing up such a random story. that you are like, this is a weird one. And it is a weird one. Um, some Christian traditions have heard this story and they've actually seen this as normative for a practice of rebaptism or getting baptized again. And it's not lost on me for some of us who have gone through this journey, have been baptized, we maybe have asked the question ourselves. Should I get baptized again? This seems like a moment where people are being baptized again. Should I get baptized again? And I think a number of different reasons for why that comes about. I think for some people, uh, they learn more things or new things about the faith that they didn't know. And they ask, did I know enough at the time that I was baptized? I think for other people, they encounter the spirit of the living God in maybe more unique ways than they previously had before. And then they wonder, well, maybe now I should get baptized. And there's even some Christian traditions that would actually say that there are two baptisms. You should be baptized once in the name of Jesus for your belief. And then there's something of a second baptism, like a spirit baptism. I know those questions kind of exist. And in our church, when we talk about baptism, we don't really talk about the practice of rebaptism. And I think there's multiple reasons for that. And one thing I'd like to just kind of say with that question, if you've ever thought about it, um, is the first one is this is not a WebMD question, okay? Uh, this is not one that you type in the Google search bar and just get an answer and go, okay? I, I, I know some of us, we're WebMD people. You know, you, you get a scratch on your toe, like, I got to go search this. And before you know it, you're like, oh, my goodness, I've read for two hours. I have smallpox. I have smallpox. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. How did we get there? How did we get there? Uh, if you wrestle with this question, uh, please do not go search it. Uh, this is why you need the community of God to help you discern this question. 
because uh, your story is really important and there needs to be some follow-up questions that are asked about your story. The second that I would like to just point out is, um, you know, in church history, and this is where this is really helpful, uh, you know, sometimes in our past we were arguing things about like, uh, I don't know, like kitchens or like extensions to churches. Uh, the church used to argue about some really tough stuff. Uh, rebaptism was no joke in church history. Uh, people died at the stake for their beliefs and thoughts about rebaptism. So we shouldn't think about that flippantly at all. But also, I think just a helpful answer to the question. I know for some of us, uh, we carry anxiety about our baptism, or we wonder about it because we've learned new things or we experience new things, or we're not sure we knew enough. And I simply want to calm that hesitancy by reminding you that baptism is not the finish line. It's the starting line. It's the starting line of experiencing God and learning new things about God. You know, I've even had seasons in my life where I've looked back and I'm like, oh gosh, I, I definitely think some different things now than uh, what I did when I actually entered the waters of baptism. But I believe there's no need to revisit baptism again because of that. Because baptism is not this pop quiz, this cognitive assent that I need to know enough or I need to do enough. It's a trust in Jesus. So for some of us, we need to just ask the question. When we enter the waters of baptism, did we believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? That He lived, that He died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and renewal of God's kingdom? And after three days, he was resurrected. And did you trust him to be Lord of your life? And if you did, then trust in his name. There's no need to be anxious about it. This is why I appreciate Acts 19. It is okay for us to continue to learn and grow and also experience in faith. There's a balance of the two that happens for us. You know, one that I would like to point is that these believers and the story that is told is that they are baptized and not only do they receive the Spirit, but they also receive some gifts of the Spirit. And if you've never heard the language of a spiritual gift, uh, I would just kind of define it as a spiritual gift is empowerment from God for God's people through the Spirit to work in us. You know, Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, now about the gifts of the spirits, brothers and sisters. I do not want you to be uninformed. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same the Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. There are gifts that the Spirit gives us to equip us to serve God's church and also to witness to the world. And in the Bible, you will find a lot of different examples. I would argue that it, it's not exhaustive of all the gifts that are in the Bible. But those gifts, either they magnify our 
ordinary attitudes or maybe talents. And then there's also gifts that are out of the ordinary that sometimes have a spiritual or supernatural quality to them. And I think, you know, you talk to different Christians and there's some Christians who think all those gifts are active and some people think some of those gifts are active. Um, and that's not something to divide over whatsoever. As we're waiting for Jesus to return, all of us can be waiting on the Spirit of God to work through us in the gifts to edify the church. And I know for some of us, we may say, I hear you. I know that's in Scripture. I'm good. I don't need, I don't need any of the, the, whatever the Spirit wants to give gift-wise, just pass. Go to, the next, go to the next person. And the thing I just want to remind us with is that it's not about us. The Spirit gives gifts to edify the people around you, to help the people around you, and also to witness in the world. They're a sign of God's Spirit. But don't let anyone take one particular spiritual gift and say to you, you have to have that gift as proof of the Spirit. They're not something that we boast in. They're something that we embrace as God graces us. So for some of us today, the question may just be like, okay, I, I'm looking to experience God. I, I want to experience the work of the Spirit and gifts. One of the things I would just say for is pray. Pray and ask for spiritual gifts in your life. And for some of us, I also want to nudge us that some spiritual gifts take risk. You may not know it, but you may be a phenomenal small group leader, but you've got to step out in faith and actually try out that gift to know if it is and rely on the community of God to also affirm that gift. The other side that's also there um, is learning. There's not just experiencing, but there's also learning. I want you to look at Acts 19.9. I want you to notice there is gifts of spirit that's poured out on, that's super exciting. And then you also find uh, the disciples, they were going and they were arguing daily. They were discussing. They were going through lectures. This went on for two years so that all who lived in the area could hear the word of the Lord. When we exit the waters of baptism, we do not stop learning. We need to keep learning. You know, I've emphasized and stressed this point several times because I think we're in a cultural moment where it is super important. Having our own faith does not mean we get to make up our own faith. It's a faith that we receive. It's one that we actually have to continue learning. Just because something is most viewed or viral does not mean it's reality or truth. When you exit the waters of baptism, there are things to learn that Christians have gone through, through the ages. Things about learning about the resurrection and the virgin birth and the Trinity and the centrality of Scripture. All things that Christians for 2,000 years need to take time and actually learn and commit themselves to. You know, there will be people who uh, going along on the journey will actually say that there are um, there is a leaning on like we need to experience God and there's other people that'll be like no 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 we don't need to experience God we need to learn more about God and holding a life that exits baptism is both 
One is not more dominant over the other. Life in the Spirit is experiencing God and learning more about God. That's how we get plunged deeper into God's story as we exit baptism. You know, as uh, we close the series on filled and led, um, I can't help but think of an analogy that, that may be helpful to you uh, when just thinking about this. Uh, it's by one of my favorite writers. His name is Ronald Rollheiser. And uh, he talks about life with God through uh, this kind of silly analogy, but it, it's helpful if you let it, let it exist in front of you for a while. Uh, he describes, you know, life with God is uh, kind of like a conversation that's shared between uh, a mama fish and a child fish. And uh, you got to go with me here. But he describes it uh, like this. He goes, imagine if that child fish, that young fish, comes to his mother in the ocean and says, Mom, what is water? How does one begin to answer the magnitude of water? Water that's all around. And Ronald Rollheiser writes, it would kind of look like this. Quite often, rightfully so, she would sit the fish down and she would begin to teach. She would talk about what water is like, what water is not like. She would roll out a projector and show slides about water, which you're like, how's electricity? You're missing the point of the story, okay? She would roll out the projector. She would show slides about the water. She'd talk about the history of the water. She'd talk about how other people had experienced the water. She would even talk about the composition of water. And even after all that explanation of water, at some point, the mother fish has to shut off the projector and take one final step. No more books. She takes the fish out to a quiet place where the fish can actually experience the water. Where she says to the child, sit quiet, be still, and let the water deeply breathe in and breathe out and flow through you. That to answer the question of water is not just to explain water, but to also experience water, to let it flow in and out and through you. So my bottom line for us today, closing out this series, is for some of us, I think we need to go back to the deep pools of learning and growing. Just because we have exited the waters of baptism does not mean that we toss out learning and growing and discussing, reasoning, all of those things. Some of us, we need to come back to the scriptures because we're talking about God that's just off the cuff of our opinion and maybe whatever we're hearing off of a news station. We need to come back to the testimony and the scripture of what the Spirit of God has done and what God is doing. For some of us who are dry in life, we need the living water of God to flow in and out of us. We need to sit at the feet of Jesus again and let the Spirit of Christ that is inside us wake us up, refresh 
us. We pray, Spirit, fill us and lead us. And then there are also maybe some of you today who have heard about water, who have heard about God, and you may believe the things about God as revealed in Jesus Christ. But you've never plunged yourself in the water. And I just simply want to invite you. If you're living in ambiguity towards God, you should step into baptism. You should step into the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus. You should confess Him as Lord. And you should be raised out of that water and receiving the family of God. Because it's how we plunge ourselves into the story of God. In a moment, the team is going to come up. And if you've got questions about baptism, if you've been thinking about it for a while, or if your heart has been tugging at you this entire time, let's go meet in the back. Let's pray. I'll be by the double doors there. We can even do it today. If that intimidates you, then it's like, okay, let's sit down and talk about it this week. But if you've thought about this for a while, you should enter the waters of baptism. You should say yes to Jesus. Because God has said yes to you. Let's go ahead and stand and sing.